Lots of fear in the world these days, right? Lots of fear. Uh, who could have known weeks and weeks ago when we were plotting out this series on the Sermon on the Mount that, uh, that fear would have a name and it would have a global alert attached to it, uh, the name Corona. Uh, interestingly, my daughter told me yesterday that the Anheuser-Busch Corporation has offered a million and a half dollars to the Modella Group if they would rename the virus the Bud Light Virus. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what happens tonight during the Super Bowl. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, you'll see in the notes that I want to shift the direction of the talk just a little bit from the title. Uh, we, of course, are going to speak about fear, but I want to take it a deeper, one, one level deeper and talk not just about overcoming fear, but about overcoming evil recognizing that that's a word that doesn't get used very much in our world anymore. It sounds kind of antiquated, a little bit Victorian. It doesn't sound at all scientific, the word evil. It's relegated now to the realm of comic books and superhero movies and and peculiar, I don't know, comedies with guys like Dr. Evil. (laughs) Uh, But in these last months, it kind of feels like we have seen devastations just stacking up one on top of another. Wildfires in Australia and volcanoes in the Philippines and hurricanes and earthquakes in the Caribbean. We've watched airplanes shot down from the sky. And just this week, I mean, reports of shootings in the GTA peppering the news every morning. One on Monday, another one at the same address on Tuesday, three on Friday. It's a time just of, of uniquely painful awareness of what's going on in the world. And it's accompanied by a uniquely painful awareness of the divisions, not just in our own country, but between countries and, and maybe more than ever in the nation immediately to the south of us. A friend of mine said, it's almost like as a country, we're going through what you might call a national case of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and it's hard to absorb all of it. And yes, all of the events are in, involving in some way suffering. And, and we, we try our best to make sense of suffering without feeling like we're just whistling in the dark. But beyond just the presence of suffering, there is, if you scratch a layer deeper, in some cases, the presence of what can only be described as evil, even though it's not a word we like to use anymore. But the human race, we're haunted by these questions, aren't we? Where does it come from? Why is it here? Will it triumph? How do we live in a world that is permeated not by acts always of remarkable goodness and generosity, those, those, are, those are there as well, but but also of deep and seething evil. Unlike a lot of folks, uh, especially in our century, the writers of Scripture, Jesus in particular, were very familiar with the subject of evil. Evil at its core is quite simple. If love is the will to do good, to desire good, to work for God's good outcome in people's lives, then evil is its exact opposite. Not just indifference, but the will to do harm, to do malice, 
to be about things that could be described in childlike language as bad, but in more adult language as vicious, violent, cruel. If God is love and, and the kingdom of God, which is the language we've latched on to describe the Sermon on the Mount, is a kingdom of love, then to, to do evil, to will evil, is to stand in direct opposition to God's will for the earth. To choose evil is to stand in opposition to the kingdom of God. That's why when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, we all know that language. It says, your kingdom come, Lord, on earth as it is in heaven. Let what's up there come down here. But fast on the heels of those words come, deliver us from evil. Why? Because that stands in opposition to the kingdom of God. Evil's different than, than our modern language just of, of mental illness or psychopathology. Mental health is not necessarily an evil, though evil is probably always a, at least a form of mental health or, or mental unhealth. But evil isn't just something that happens to us. Evil is kind of like something that's happening in us. One of the great Christian thinkers of the last century, a, a Danish philosopher, his name was Soren Kierkegaard, wrote this amazing little book called The Sickness Unto Death. And what he's writing about is how evil progresses in the lives of human beings. He says it starts when a person suffers pain and hurt, when they're bullied or mistreated. It happens to almost everybody at some point in life. But in some people, the experience of, of those, um, those malicious acts gets so internalized and they, they brood on it and they turn it over and over again in their mind and in their life, and, and they cycle downward with a passion about this pain until it becomes what Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard called a demonic rage. And at that point, a person doesn't even want to be delivered from their pain. That pain is their identity. And it's just that seething pool of pain, that identity of being a victim, gives them a sense of superiority to other people. And when evil is fully formed in a person, they live to inflict malice on others. They just vomit out pain into the world with an accusation of vitriol against existence itself, against life, against God. That's evil. And I know it exists. And maybe deep down, so do you regardless of our ability to make light of it or to deny it from time to time. You know that any time we want to do something that we know is wrong, it, it always requires this little act of hiddenness, pretending that nobody sees it, pretending that, that we can ignore it, this illusion that it remains hidden. But what I also know is that that line between good and evil is a line that just doesn't go through nations at war, doesn't just go through families in conflict. The line goes right through the human heart. We all make choices. Sometimes we're not even aware of the choices that we're making. We brood over something. We, we clutch it. We hide. We sin. And we justify not trying to make things right. We find a way to bury it down deep so we can forget but sin after sin compounds in moment after moment and it begins to accrue a kind of influence in the soul. 
at our best, I think, human societies, particularly modern societies, have, a tried, have tried to address that problem through education. Uh, education is generally a, a good thing. But we also know that well-educated people are just as capable of evil as those who are kept naive. And Jesus and the biblical writers, they say that the great problem of the human race isn't ignorance. It doesn't lie here in the mind, in the accumulation of knowledge. It, it's somewhere else. It's in the will. It's, it's the choice to inflict harm. And only a leader, only, only a thinker, who is able to account for the presence of evil and explain it and provide a way through and provide a hope in the world in the face of evil, only that kind of leader is worth the allegiance of followers or disciples. And I believe that we as a church in Jesus have exactly that kind of a leader. Jesus led Paul, one of, one of the great followers of Jesus, who writes in in one of the great moral, spiritual passages in the Bible, in Romans 12. Paul says this, Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, read it with me, but overcome evil with good. See, this gets at why evil is the core problem. Because lots of other forces, they can damage us. Bullying, sickness, injury, insult, death, all of these things can happen to us, but but they can't separate us from God. Followers of Jesus through all the centuries have laughed in the face of every one of those things. But being overcome by evil, it's the ultimate tragedy that can happen to a human being. Nothing else come close. Because suffering happens to you, but evil happens in you. Evil will claim your thoughts. It will twist your desires. It will corrupt your will. It will damage your soul. And I know all of that sounds odd today. And this sermon is unlike most Sundays around here. And it feels like maybe it belongs in the 18th century or something like that. But if if we don't address evil, who is going to in our society? I mean, whose job is it really to fight evil? It's the church. I mean, hear me out on this. Because you understand that there are all kinds of organizations in the world doing all kinds of good. They might go after poverty, illiteracy, hunger, making better transportation, cleaner water, available clothing. But it is the church's task to confront evil. And the very fact that that sounds odd in our world today is an indicator of just how important it is. Where is the battle fought between good and evil? It's not a battle where we're the church, we're the good guys. We put on our armor, we take up our sword, we go to war fighting the bad guys. And the battle isn't going to be fought in Las Vegas or Ottawa or Kabul or Hollywood. It's not somewhere out there. It's fought here. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was the writer, and we used this language once already, who said the line between good and evil runs right through the human soul. It's why evil can't be overcome by evil. Because all that happens is we extinguish our own lives. It can't be overcome by hate or force, which is always the world's way. How's the battle fought? You overcome evil 
with good within your own soul, within your will and your mind. And here seems to be the perspective of Jesus, and we're going to tease it out of the Sermon on the Mount. He seems to suggest, remarkably, that it is the soul that is alive and trusting in the reality of the kingdom of God that can be delivered from evil and can be a little part of overcoming evil with good. Let's see if we can tease that out. Listen again to these these sublime words of Jesus. They mark the end of the opening section of the Sermon on the Mount, that part called the Beatitudes, and the beginning of the further section. So I hope you have your Bibles with you. Matthew 5, these are the words that Augustine read for us. Matthew 5, verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hold on to that link. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice, be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Put Put a question mark beside that. What does heaven mean there? Great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These are really strange words, right? They're strange not just because they're old or counterintuitive, but they're strange because they violate our mental map of how the world should be. Just a word or two about what that means. Generally, most of us have some sort of mental map that allows us to navigate the world. In general, my mental map is this. If I'm going to have the good life, which we said a couple of weeks ago is a synonym for the word blessed. Blessed means I want the good life for you. If I'm going to have the good life, In general, other people ought to like me. They should approve of me. They should think well of me, boost my sense of self-esteem. In general, they ought to do what I want them to do. Otherwise, it's frustrating for me. My kids ought to go to great schools where they earn incredible grades because of my genetic excellence and my superior parenting. Right? They... I want a spouse. I must have one who's attractive and supportive and really skilled as a mind reader and infinitely patient. Yeah, uh, Karina. I want a boss who gives me raises. <laughs> I want friends who sing my praises. I, I want customers who buy my products. I want neighbors to write notes of gratitude to me just because they get to live near me. That's my mental map for the world. And then we run into people in situations where that gets overturned, where reality hits. In fact, here's a great definition of reality. Reality is what you run into when you're wrong. <laughs> I was shopping a few, few years ago. I don't do this very often because I hate it, but I was shopping for clothes. I think I was at Square One. I went to a store called Max, M-E-X-X. Do you know the one? It's designed for hipsters, young and thin. So I I realized within a few minutes that I was in the wrong store. And I tried to get out as quickly as I could. I went so quickly that I ran headlong into the glass panel that I didn't even know was there. (laughs) Bam! And it shook and, and I cascaded backwards. Reality is what you run into when you're wrong. And sometimes the most important reality is unseen reality. In our day, we're skeptical about it. The only reality is the reality that we can see. 
If you were to go to U of T or McMaster and say, hey, where's your department of reality? It turns out they don't have one. You could say, hey, do you have a department of good and evil? And they don't have that either, but Jesus did, and he does. We all have beliefs about how things are. We have a theory of reality, whether we want to or not. You can't act, you can't live without one. You have a mental map. I am who other people say that I am. Other people should do what I want them to do. Uh, If I don't get treated the right way by other people, it's unbearable for me. We run into reality. Other people don't share my ideas about the world. Jesus says when that happens, or to even go a level deeper, when evil comes, when people are malicious to you, you can still be blessed. You can be blessed in the midst of an evil happening world. How? If you're living in the kingdom of God. And we go, what? Uh, What does that mean? What does that mean practically? It, It means, first of all, that we learn a different perspective on the world in which we live. And I want to talk about that for for just a few minutes. Most people, well, let me ask you, when you hear the word heaven, what do you think about? Just call out some things. Heaven. Streets of gold. Yeah. What else? Never-ending food. food. It's like a cruise ship. Yeah. Uh, What else? Heaven. Angels. Clouds. Sunshine, sunshine, yes. (laughs) No more pain. No more disease. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, flowers. Yeah. Check me on this. But I, I imagine that if you were to ask people in general what they think of heaven, they imagine it as a place far, far away remote from the earth, way up in the sky, a, 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 a future that is distant, I mean, further than Inuvik. It's, just, it's way north of here. In every encounter that I'm aware of in the Bible, where God speaks, when he speaks from the heavens, it looks like he's right beside the people he's speaking to. Let me give you some examples, all from Genesis. A woman named Hagar, desperately alone with her young boy, and we're told that that a messenger from God called out to Hagar from heaven and said, don't be afraid. Abraham's there about to sacrifice his son Isaac. I mean, a terrible tragedy. The Lord calls to him out of heaven, says, don't touch the boy, leave him alone. Years later, a man named Jacob sees the Lord standing right there next to him and says, God lives here. This is the awesome entrance into heaven itself. In every one of the passages, in every occasion where it looks like the Bible is using the language of heaven, it's using to describe the idea that God is here, that God interacts with us. That's Jesus' mental map of reality. But a huge problem for us trying to live in the kingdom of God is that we imagine that God is far away in a universe that's primarily filled with empty space and it makes us feel alone. So let me share an analogy. I read this this week. It helped me understand the relationship between all that empty space 
and yet the reality of the Spirit of God. So chalk this one up. This comes from the Department of Reality. And I think there is a, there is a truth behind it, and it's actually a true story to begin with. Years ago in the Soviet Union, there was a scientific institute where the brains of great communist leaders were analyzed under microscopes. They were dead, I presume, at the time. But See, what they'd hoped to find was some biological reason, some identifiable sign for what made their communist personalities great. If they could put under a microscope on a slide and identify the great, the great marker of the communist brain, maybe they could replicate it. Of course, they found no secrets there because you can't identify a person that way. If you took your body apart, atom by atom, looking for you, we would never find you that way. From the viewpoint of a single atom, your body is mostly just vast, empty space. Yet you inhabit your body. And you use your body to express yourself, your spirit. That's why we say the eyes are the window to the soul. Roughly speaking, God inhabits all of space like you inhabit the body. He is everywhere. There's nowhere where he is not. That's why the kingdom of God, the rule of God, is not some distant, out there, far away, many years from now. It's an ever-present reality. Paul knew this. In Acts 17, he says, in one of the most telling verses in Scripture, for in him, for in God, this is Acts 17, 28. This should be underlined in your Bibles. For in God we live and move and have our being. He's everywhere. He's closer than the breath that you breathe. So yes, we live in a world that is still marred by evil. But if you have this new perspective that says God is everywhere, that perspective will determine your response. I know that's kind of heavy, so let's, let's lighten it up for just a second and, and think about how a change of perspective changes things. Uh, I read this again this week, uh, a letter from a daughter away at college writing to her mom. Dear mom, sorry I haven't written sooner. My arm is broken and my left leg too. I broke them when I jumped from the second floor of my dormitory after we had a fire. But we were lucky. A young service station attendant saw the blaze, called the fire department, and they were there in three minutes, and I was in hospital for a few days. Paul, the service station attendant, he came to see me every day. And because it was taking so long to get our dormitory livable again, I moved in with him. He's so nice. I must admit, Mom, I'm pregnant. Paul and I plan to get married just as soon as he can get a divorce. <laughs> I hope things are fine at home. Love your daughter, Susie. P.S., Mom, none of the above is true, but I did get a C in sociology and I flunked chemistry. <laughs> I just wanted you to receive this news in its proper perspective. Perspective is always a matter of taking a step back. 
so you can see the larger picture. Perspective means putting things in their proper place. That's what Jesus does. He doesn't come up close to the life of his followers and say, now that I'm here, no bad things will ever happen. He doesn't say, now that you're a good Christ follower, everybody's going to like you. He doesn't say, if you find a good enough church, all the people in it are going to be emotionally healthy. Look around you. (laughs) Look at the stage. What he says is, if you're living in this kingdom, you're no longer living at the mercy of what other people think of you and how they treat you and the malice and evil of the world. Because other circumstances can threaten your your earthly well-being, but they cannot threaten your ultimate well-being. And yes, cruelty may be there. But in the kingdom of God, God is always more. You think, seriously? I mean, what about Wuhan, China? What about Jane Finch in Toronto? This seems to be Jesus' claim, and it's not a naive one, that there is no place in the world that is unsafe for those who belong to the kingdom of God. And remember, the person who said this was a man who was crucified. He says, the world is a perfectly safe place to be because of who God is. This just in from the Department of Reality. God is closer than you think. And so we live with that perspective that God is always here, that this is the kingdom. And when evil happens, we learn to navigate it. And somehow we learn to do it with these two difficult but ultimately rewarding teachings from Jesus. First, without judging all the time and and judging a lot of people, because this goes so deep in us. Jesus is going to say later in the Sermon on the Mount, don't judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. It's fascinating. You know, there's this whole field in psychology now. It's called the, the fundamental attribution error. That's what psychology does. They invite really big words to describe really simple things. But the fundamental attribution error is this. When I see somebody doing something wrong, I tend to attribute it to them having a poor character, not to them having a bad day. However, when I find myself doing something wrong, I tend to attribute that not to me having poor character, but just bad circumstances. Jesus says, get out of the judging game. It doesn't mean we don't discern good and evil, especially in our own lives, but it means we don't use contempt and we don't use revenge as a way of navigating relationships. I no longer am in charge of the department of straightening people out. That's good news, isn't it? I no longer am in charge of the department of straightening people out. That's God's job, and I'm happy it's his. So maybe this week you're at McDonald's in a lineup. You get to the front. The person serving you at the counter is really surly. Don't be surly back. Maybe think for just a moment how you could bring a moment of light and joy to their day. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. 1 Corinthians 4, 3. It says, I care, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. It is the Lord who judges. A lot of times when people are mistreated, they feel wounded, they're afraid of confrontation, And so they pretend to agree or they placate or they go into avoidance mode. In the kingdom of God, you don't have to respond out of fear. 
God is right here. Black History Month, right? I know we're marking it and celebrating it this week in our third wave seniors gathering. So I thought of this, this illustration, and I know it's familiar and it should be. 1955, Sunday school teaching Jesus follower named Rosa Parks was told after she boarded a bus that she couldn't sit where she wanted. She had to move to the back. She said no. She said no because she knew the request not came, or did not come because the bus was full, but because they didn't like the color of her skin. And she said no, and they put her in jail for it. And she said no, and she received hundreds and then thousands of threatening phone calls and death threats. She said no, and she lost her job just a few weeks later. They said it wasn't because of the boycott. They were just firing her. But she followed a savior who said the world can throw you in jail, but it's a perfectly safe place because they cannot separate you from the love of God. And she was used in that moment to inspire a nation. You know, Rosa Parks died not too very long ago, age of 92. And she was the very first woman ever to lie in state at the Capitol Rotunda as 30,000 people stood in line to pay their respects to this woman who wasn't allowed to sit at the front of the bus. She was then and she is now living in a different kingdom. You see, when we live in the kingdom of our friend Jesus, it also means that when evil comes your way, you don't automatically have to inflict pain back. Scripture put it, puts it like this in Romans 12, says don't repay anyone evil for evil. So this week when you get hurt, and you will, when you get hurt, don't immediately jump to the conclusion that it was the intent of the other person. This week, first stop and listen and pray and ask, God, is there something for me to learn here? And even if you do experience evil this week, remember, don't repay evil for evil, insult for insult. Don't repay hurt for hurt and pain for pain because that cycle only leads to the bottom. Overcome evil with good. How blessed are you, Jesus said, when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you. Really, Jesus? You're going to have to decide what you believe. But I'll tell you this, those were never just words to Jesus. He came not just to teach the kingdom, but to live it and to model it. And he was persecuted his whole life long. Herod wanted to kill him when he was a baby. His his family had to flee to Egypt. His first sermon, Luke chapter 4, his congregation were so stirred up, so offended, they tried to stone him. Thank goodness congregations are a little bit more moderate these days. He was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. He was called a half-breed and a Samaritan. People said he was in league with the devil. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. Religious leaders who should have embraced him condemned him. The crowd mocked him. Soldiers beat him. And the Romans crucified him. This is Jesus. And so you need to ask yourself this question. What other historical figure 
have you ever heard of who's been portrayed as the victim of more insult, more slander, hostility, rejection, shame, deeper failure, worse evil than this man Jesus who said, blessed are you. We're told that even when he was hanging on the cross, the crowd mocked him. They used his own words. This man saved others, they said. Save yourself, you savior guy. And I wonder if in those moments there wasn't at least one or two people in the crowd who remembered his words. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you. He can't have looked very blessed at that moment on the cross. But that's what Rome does. That's how our world operates. Somebody threatens you, you threaten them right back. Somebody gets you, you get them right back. Somebody hurts you, you hurt them worse. In Rome, when somebody threatens you, when somebody gets in the way, you execute them at a special place for it. They staked the crosses out in a place called Calvary. That was the way the world worked. And they all knew that that would be the end of it because what happens at Calvary ends at Calvary. But not this time. Not this time. What happened at Calvary on the third day has spread all over the world. And it's this same Jesus who still says to us today, Blessed are you in the kingdom of my Father. Blessed are you even when evil comes your way, when you're hurt and confused and perplexed. Blessed are you. That's the gospel of the kingdom. And rather than say too much more about it, I think maybe we should just celebrate it. And what better place than here? Let me lead you in prayer and then welcome you to the table. Heavenly Father, we use those words. Sometimes they roll off our tongues too lightly. Your kingdom come. Lord, do we even know what we're praying for? That sublime reality, that recognition that that every every facet of the universe that you have made is permeated by the presence of God, that the kingdom is not far away, but is ever-present. I pray as we, as we hold in our hands a small piece of bread, a cup of wine, that you could draw us into that living reminder that that kingdom is not just ever-present, but it is a kingdom marked profoundly by love, by sacrificial, redeeming love. And that for us, the kingdom has a name. And that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In his name we pray. Amen.